La Rui Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past. Read for you by me, the author, Mary La. In the last episode, I read Gullible Girl and Girls Like Me, where I shared some of the near-fatal and emotionally damaging decisions I made on the beginning of my journey to numb my pain of desperately wanting to be loved and accepted. Today I will read the next story in the book, Go Ask Your Mother. But I should warn you, it has some disturbing content that may be difficult for some listeners. Here is Go Ask Your Mother. My friend Amy and I were met by a thick wall of humidity from all the sweaty teenage bodies dancing ecstatically to Rebel Rebel by David Bowie. Although not officially invited to the party at the sprawling ranch house surrounded by acres of citrus orchards, we hoped if we walked in with confidence we'd be perceived as cool enough to be there. Before Amy jumped into the dancing crowd, she shouted, Mary, you look foxy! Having borrowed her denim wraparound skirt and white tube top, I did feel foxy, but not brave enough to jump into the middle of that mosh pit of about 80 drunk kids having a blast by making complete fools of themselves. I went searching for some liquid courage instead. After winding my way through the crowd, I found the kitchen, where I spent a couple of hours drinking cheap beer with the rowdy athletic types. When I was simultaneously sprayed with beer and a cheerleader vomited on the borrowed skirt, it was time to go. I couldn't find Amy in the house, so I went out into the driveway to look for her as it was nearly midnight and her brother was supposed to pick us up any minute, when I was intercepted by a boy who had already graduated from high school. I described Amy and asked if he had seen her. Without saying a word, after staring at me for just a moment, he lurched toward me and flipped me over his shoulder, reeking of wood and leather, most likely his father's cologne. He carried me into the orchard, running the entire way. I laughed for the first few jostling steps until his shoulders started digging into my stomach, with my giggles quickly turning into screams when some low branches from several orange trees clawed at my back and ripped Amy's tube top off. The young man threw me down onto the hard ground, and I landed flat on my back with a thud, losing my wind. As he jumped on top of me, I grappled for air, the stench of his stale beer breath punching me in the face as he fumbled with the zipper on his jeans with one hand and ripped off my panties with the other. Without the emotional willpower to fight, he entered me. I didn't want to make him mad, thinking he would harm me. I laid there paralyzed because I didn't know what to do. I had no communication skills or enough self-confidence to deal with a situation like this. And I certainly didn't want to be called a prick tease again. He didn't ask my name. He didn't say a word to me. He didn't want me for anything other than a female body to violate. 
After rolling off me, he ran for a van that was idling in the driveway as his buddies called out his last name. I stood there in the dark orchard, paralyzed in shame again, topless with blood dripping down the backs of my legs as my white ankle socks turned red. I couldn't find my shoes, my panties, or Amy's tube top in the almost pitch black. Amy was long gone by the time I emerged from the orchard. I didn't want anyone to see me half naked and don't remember how I got to a phone booth to call my mother. My parents had recently separated and she was temporarily living on my father's little sailboat at a marina about 30 minutes away where she stayed after returning from her trip to Hawaii with Bob, the man she left our family for. She arrived in a little red sports car, gave me her sweater, and took me to the emergency room. With a rape kit in hand, the emotionless ER doctor had to get a sample of evidence that might be lingering between my legs. I felt humiliated as he slowly plucked out a bunch of pubic hair, then plunged into my vagina with a large swab, which he placed in a test tube. He was grinding his teeth during the entire process while the police stood by waiting to take a statement from me. As my mother drove me home from the emergency room at about 3 a.m., she said, I didn't really believe you until I saw the gashes on your back. Too traumatized and embarrassed to respond to her comment, I said nothing. In bed that night, I thought about why she would think I would make something like this up and what I would possibly have to gain from going to the emergency room if I really wasn't hurt. My father insisted we press charges. After I identified the 20-year-old rapist by his last name and yearbook picture, he was arrested and put in jail. But it wasn't until 30 years later that I learned my father was able to visit him there the night before our court appearance. Always fierce for his daughters, I can only imagine what my father said to him. On the day of my court appearance, after being told to wear something conservative, I sat in the rigid wooden box of a chair next to the judge, looking like I belonged on the set of Little House on the Prairie. I felt nauseous as I pointed at the rapist and testified my truth of that awful evening in front of an audience that included my father. When the rapist's turn came to speak, he said I had suggested we go into the orchard to have sex, and I burst into silent tears as I ran out of the courtroom. I'm not sure what happened after I left, but knew he was allowed to go home with his mother that day. It wasn't until later that I learned his mother was the hall monitor who caught me smoking in the girls' bathroom in middle school and had me kicked off the drill team. The morning after I appeared in court, my father poked his head into my bedroom and nonchalantly said, the sheriff was just here. You don't have to worry about that boy anymore. 
He was found dead in his bedroom. The rapist was dead. My mother and father were relieved, but I was shocked. Did he take his own life? Did his father kill him? Did mine? I felt more grief for his mother than I did for his short life ending however it had. Although my parents never spoke of it again, I've thought about it over a million times. After that, the world felt unsafe and I no longer trusted anybody, not even myself. I felt responsible for what happened and unworthy of any relationship. I dropped my social life, feeling extremely guilty for all the disastrous consequences of my careless choices. That boy's actions and consequences fertilized a seed of shame in me that grew into a barbed vine around my heart, which would define how I showed up in the world and relationships for decades to come. My rape story ultimately turned into a pity card I'd whip out of my back pocket whenever I needed a hit of sympathy. Because some men thrive on trying to save women from their misery, I attracted unstable knights in dull armor and others who were equally as wounded as I, who I felt the need to mother and take care of. In my early 40s, as I started speaking about my feelings of self-loathing around this rape experience with women I trusted, the abrasive grip of my shame finally began to loosen. But I didn't fully untangle its grip until decades later when I was able to receive the unconditional love of a healthy, happy, good-natured man who I share all of my stories with. And while he may flinch, this wonderful man feels no pity, with his love only deepening as he gets to know the story of my life. But more about Grant later. I'd like to talk about shame. After this sequence of events, I handled my shame for a couple of decades by swallowing it whole, which only gave it time to fester in my gut hold me hostage, gain power over me, and color my self-image a yucky vomit brown. I was incredibly disappointed with myself and terrified that if I shared what I let this guy do to me and then him dying as a result, I would be judged and rejected so harshly that I may never recover from it. How the heck did I move through the mortifying shame of this event? It was not easy, but like I mentioned in the story, I started talking about it, first casually to men I became intimate with, then sincerely with women I trusted, and finally wholeheartedly with my beloved partner Grant. By sharing my story out loud, I did risk the chance of judgment and rejection but the absolute opposite happened. I wasn't ridiculed or ousted. A pathway to self-forgiveness was opened for me. I received only empathy from those people who care about me. I also had to separate 
who I am with what I did. I had to replace my thoughts about being a terrible person with I did something bad, not that I was bad. What was the bad something I did? For me, it was the decision to let that boy rape me and not fight him off. I allowed him to physically assault me, and I perceived myself as a weak coward. I then dug to the root of what my motivation was for what I did, and found it was twofold. I didn't want to get hurt worse than I already was, and mostly, I was living from that dysfunctional mindset of not wanting to disappoint anyone or make anyone mad at me for fear of rejection. I valued keeping the peace over my own emotional and physical well-being. So of course I would let him attack me. Of course I didn't defend myself. Of course I would take the blame for his untimely death. When I finally broke through this shame, I was able to write this story. I know that it is up for judgment, but that's okay. I am so much stronger now and have enough healthy values, boundaries, and self-respect to carry me unscathed through anything anyone has to say about it. And if anyone were to attempt to lay a hand on me or my beloveds, they will never forget or maybe not even be alive to remember that I am a force to be reckoned with. I hope, go ask your mother, will be the trigger someone needs to move forward with their next step to awareness and freedom from shame. If this story doesn't trigger anyone, the intense story on tap for the next episode certainly could. If you would like to see the self-portrait I created to accompany the story I read today, you'll find it on my blog at mary-law.com. Or better yet, while you are on my website, buy a copy of The Great Unlearning. There are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. If you purchase a book via my website... I will send you an autographed copy while they last, or you can buy it on Amazon. Now it's time to address a listener's question. Susan, a listener from Portland, Oregon, asks, I absolutely love the image I found on your website for the story fitting in. How did you do that? I'm glad you asked, Susan. I love sharing my creative process. For listeners who haven't visited my blog at mary-law.com to see this self-portrait, my body looks like a tight pretzel crammed into a small square container that would be virtually impossible to actually do physically. But since I am a whiz at Photoshop, I made it look like I am uncomfortably stuffed into that container. 
First, I lay down my back naked and positioned the camera on a tripod above me so that it was facing down at me and took a photograph of myself in the tightest ball I could. My arms were wrapped around tight on my legs, my knees were pressing hard against my chest, and my head was between my knees. I couldn't breathe while taking that photo, actually. Then I photographed an empty five-inch square ceramic planter I had on my porch, then sized my body in Photoshop so I could drop it into the planter. I adjusted the lighting and added some texture, and voila. Head over to my website and check out my blog at mary-law.com and have a look at it. I think it's a rather cool creation. If you have a question or comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-law.com. There's a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. My website and email address are also in the show notes. And I have a free gift for you. By signing up for my engaging newsletter with inspiring new content, information on upcoming events and future projects, you will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, Fear Means Go, read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, I will be reading the next story in the book titled, It Was a Boy, which is about a devastating decision I made at 17 to keep the peace with my mother, but at an extreme emotional and physical expense, which haunted me for decades. Listener discretion is strongly advised as this story contains a very controversial event that will most likely upset some people. This is Mary Law. Thanks for listening. Thank you.